1: There's nothing quite like playing in Madison Square Garden, and multiple Gators got their first exposure to the world's most famous arena on Tuesday night in a win over West Virginia. It was a necessary shot in the arm for Mike White's team as they looked to find their footing before a massive visit from Michigan State. On today's show, we'll recap the latest basketball news, discuss early storylines for the Peach Bowl, ponder what's next for Urban Meyer, and debate whether the college football playoff committee got it right with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Plus, Rachel Kramer talks volleyball as underdog run to the Sweet 16 and reveals the remarkable depths of her obsession with Disney World. But first, it wasn't always pretty, but the Gators used a gritty defensive performance in the second half to secure their highest-profile win of the season against the Mountaineers. So to open this week's roundtable, We asked Chris what stood out to him about the performance MSG and what it says about where the Gators are right now.
2: Well, no, you're not going to build an offensive tape, but I think you build a defensive tape. And um, I think the takeaway from at least eight games into this season is this Florida team in its current form is going to have trouble scoring points. I mean, when you go into a season and your uh, and your leading scorer and your All-SEC player Jalen Hudson is in the funkies in and struggling to to play on both ends now, um, you got to uh, hit reset button. And um, for a second straight game, Kaylon Allen had a, had that bounce about him that he has to have. Uh, he was confident. He played really, really hard on both ends of the floor. Mike White was t- telling me. Uh we, we got back to uh, Wednesday morning around 530 in the morning. He wow. sitting out waiting for our luggage to come. And he, he said he said it may have been the hardest Kayvon Allen has ever played since he's been here. Hmm. And that was on both ends. He had an aggressive aggressiveness and assertiveness to him that sometimes we don't see like Florida State game, like a couple other games, of the season, like a bunch of games last year. But when he's confident and driving the ball and feeling himself as it were, it spills over to, to other guys on the team. Now, having said that, we talked yeah, No, it's not a clinic offensively. But defensively, this team's kind of finding itself a little bit. And if you had asked Mike White, Adam, uh, last summer what the strengths of the te- this team was going to be, he would definitely said offense and, we're gonna, and and that the team was going to have to figure some stuff out defensively. Well, it's exactly the opposite. So here you have a West Virginia team that comes in uh, uh, 19th in the country in the Ken Palm advanced metrics when it comes to offensive efficiency. And they have their worst offensive game of the year. They're averaging uh, 86 points a game. They have 56 points. They turn it over 21 times. Not all that was Florida. West Virginia is, is not the team it has been in the past, especially with those two backcourt guys that's, that were there four years gone. But Florida needed a win. They played five high major teams this year, or, or excuse me, they played four going in. They'd only won one game against a Stanford team that's probably not very good. You know, they lost to Florida State. They lost to Butler. They lost to Oklahoma. This is something they can hang their hats on, and certainly uh, they need some some hat-hanging thing uh, with Michigan State coming in this week because Michigan State is a totally different animal. They're they're not in in a down year. They're not rebuilding like West Virginia is. They're a constant across the board, mentally tough, physically tough, defense-first program, and certainly one that's capable to score points. But Mike White has something to build on. Uh, After this game, now they see if they can continue, but there's there's still certainly some things that they have to figure out.
1: You mentioned Kayvon Allen, and I was going to ask you about him, but since you sort of addressed that, I guess I'll turn the focus to the younger guys. Given how much Mike White preaches defense and the offensive talent that the newcomers clearly already came in with, how encouraging is it to see that the younger guys are buying into that defensive mentality and that they're bringing that kind of effort on the other side of the court?
2: I want to say it was the North Florida game. So let's talk about those younger guys. I don't think there's any surprise that Andrew Nemhard was the starting point guard from from day one. I think a lot of people expected that, given Florida had no proven backup to Chris Chioza last year. So here's Andrew Nemhart, a five-star prospect, who certainly hasn't done anything to disappoint. I mean, the guy is a a stat line stuffer. He's mature beyond his years. His ball security is exquisite. The more you watch him, the more impressed you are with him, with his poise and his pace, the the way he plays. I think he could play any way the Gators need him to play. But right now he's playing how they need him to play in terms of, That pace. The other young guy, obviously, Noah Locke, is in the starting lineup already. I don't think anyone expected that because I don't think anybody foresaw uh, what was going to happen with Jalen Hudson to date. But last week against North Florida, Noah Locke came out of the game and was hyperventilating at one point Hmm. because he had to play so because he was playing so hard. And uh, I I talked to him a little bit in the days after that, and he was saying, "I, "I never mind being taken out of a game because at the point I come out of the game." I I usually don't have anything left to play with. And that's the kind of mentality that that Mike White wants. That's the kind of culture he wants. He wants guys spending themselves out on the court. He doesn't have that right now across the board. That's what the culture is he's building toward. So you have those guys. You have Keontae Johnson, who while is wildly athletic, He needs to pick up his motor a little bit, and I think he did uh, against West Virginia. I mean, it was a game that was kind of open floor and spaced uh, up and down a little bit, and that plays more to what he's he's good at right now. He was four or five from the floor. He scored nine points. He had four rebounds, and he had four steals in 19 minutes. So those are your three young guys. They have three really, really good young guys coming in next year. So I know I don't want to jump ahead, but there's some things about, about this team and about the future of this team that look pretty promising right now. But uh, Mike White now has no problem trusting those younger guys, obviously, because two of them are starting and the third one is, uh, is playing a huge part off the bench.
1: Let's jump ahead to what's immediately in front of them, which is this game against Michigan State that you mentioned. And it's the last game before the finals break, so about a, a 10-day gap after this. So uh, it's Michigan State. It's a top-10 team. It's, it's, you know, it's in the O-Dome. Uh, a real opportunity here, Chris. What does Florida have to do to capitalize on this opportunity, and, and where are the matchups that are favorable to them?
2: I don't know if there are any matchups that are favorable to them, to be honest with you. you know, Michigan State opened the season its number one Kansas and lost by five. A, uh, Monday night they played Iowa, uh, 18th ranked Iowa and beat them by 22. Uh, they have a, a handful of double, of double digit wins on their resume. Now they did lose to, uh, to Louisville, which was somewhat of a surprise, but, uh, this is a really good team. It's a, I mean, it usually with Tom Izzo team, you can kind of just figure what they're going to look like and what they're going to play like without even knowing any of the personnel. Okay. So, uh, what Florida is going to have to do, Adam, they're probably going to have to, score more points now that's that's 66 isn't the kind of number they want to be around but if that's where they're gonna that's where they're gonna play those kind that kind of offensive game then they're gonna have to play that kind of defense on the other side and they're it's gonna have to be better than it was against West Virginia they're gonna have to box out because you know Michigan State is going to be physical people keep saying when are they going to get productivity from the from the front court well I mean Florida this is who they are I mean, Gorgon not playing. Isaiah Stokes is limited in minutes because of his conditioning. Uh, Chase Johnson isn't going to be on the court anytime soon with his uh, with his lingering concussion issues and his inability to stay on the court for practice. So, uh, you know, Keystone has to up his game up. He was decent against West Virginia: nine points, eight rebounds. He had three steals. Kavari Hayes is who he is. You know, Florida is limited what it can do offensively in the front court. They're not going to play inside out. Kevari says is a is a 6.6 rebound guy and has been the last probably three year, three seasons. So this is this is going to be who he is. So they're going to have to get what they can from the guys from Keontae Johnson in limited time from Dante Bassett. DeAndre Ballard had been their leading scorer uh, heading into that game. He was 0 for 6 from the floor, but when he was on there, he played hard and he made some things happen on defense. He had a, an incredible kind of drive, and there was nothing there. He saw uh, he saw bigs in front of him and wheeled around and pitched it out to Andrew Nemhardt for a wide-open three that gave Florida a 16-point lead. That's a winning play, and it's probably something that killed him to have to do because the guy just wants to shoot the ball every time he gets it in his hands. But that's a winning play, and that shows growth on his side, and there was some bright spots with that, with that kid and what he's becoming. So I uh, gave you a long answer for, for what probably is a short They're going to have to play a, a really a, a spectacular game to beat a team like Michigan State even here. But uh, the energy in the O-Dome should be something that, you know, it's it's one of those games that, that, you know, those kind of strange games. There's Michigan State coming in the O-Dome. It's not the kind of thing you you see a lot when a marquee program comes on the road for a non-conference game. So the Gators should be excited. Their fans should be excited. And uh, let's hope it plays to the kind of uh, a level that we all hope it would.
1: Let's switch from talking about Michigan State to uh, just Michigan. That is the matchup for Florida in the Peach Bowl, which was, not to take too much credit here, correctly predicted by me on this podcast a week ago. But that notwithstanding. I don't even remember that. It happened. <laughs> you you said you were looking for Florida, West Virginia, and Scott was on the Florida UCF bandwagon.
3: And I was not alone in that
1: Florida UCF bandwagon. That, is, that is true. I got to take some wins when I can get them. Otherwise, Chris will deny me. Um, so now that we know the matchup, uh, the storylines are a plenty. There's no question about that. Uh, for you guys, what stands out? What makes this interesting in your minds?
3: Well, I don't think when you look at this matchup, it's about two programs that really had very disappointing 2017 seasons to different degrees. Obviously Florida went four and seven, Michigan eight and five after a promising start, Jim Harbaugh hired some new staff members including former Gators coach Jim McLean, who will who's already gone he'll hopefully at Central Michigan but obviously that helped re-energize that program you know they went into the game against Ohio State at the end of the regular season still in the college football playoff front lost to the Buckeyes again so now they're going to Atlanta to face the Gators who so for them you know this is a bit we've talked about it this is a rebuilding year our audience knows what's happened to Florida. And now, as the bowl season unfolds, you got another matchup. This will be the third time in 38 games these two schools have met. And Hmm. To kind of give you an idea of how odd that is, Adam, that's the same number of times over that span that the Gators have faced all their SEC rivals. So, there's a familiarity factor there. Once the announcer came out, you saw a lot of buzz about why Michigan, why not UCF. That's a legitimate question. A lot of people wanted to see that Florida-UCF matchup potentially. Scott Strickland says that wasn't on the table there, uh, what he was dealt with, and uh, they're looking forward to playing Michigan. And uh, here's the one thing the Gator fans want to see. They want to see finally a win over Michigan because the last two times these teams have met, uh, the Citrus Bowl at the end of the two thousand what, fifteen season, mm-hmm. 41-7 loss, then obviously the opener, in 2017 33-17 lost out in arlington texas so it hasn't gone very well for the gators and they're 0-4 all time against the wolverines so if florida is due it would be a good time this year a good way to end mullen's uh, first season
2: i agree with scott i think there was a lot of anticipation from the fan base they've seen a uh florida and central florida matchup but and again there probably is some um florida michigan kind of hangover from from playing them so often like you said what was it three times three times in 38 games I think if anything else the best thing that this at this uh matchup will do Adam in terms of trying to pinpoint where Florida is I think last week I reeled off some statistics befores and afters
3: mm-hmm.
2: McIlwain versus uh Dan Mullen and you know uh we can line at tail of the tape right up after this game is over when they played last year Florida uh, Michigan had 433 yards of offense Florida had 192 wow so where, where will that be on the night of December 29th? What will those numbers be? And, and what can we like show tangible digits that show how much better, uh, Florida is, uh, this season, last season? I mean, so that was Felipe Frank's first, uh, start of his career. Mm-hmm. He was five for, nine, for 75 yards and got taken out of the game for Malik Zaire. There's a pretty clear cut baseline in terms of progression, at least from the Florida side, specifically on offense and it will be out there for everyone to see against a defense that, you know, a couple of weeks ago was the number one defense in the country that got just absolutely shredded by Ohio state. What's the potential for Florida to go in and make some plays against that team? Uh, uh, we'll see some things about Dan Mullen. You know what? He's going to have, uh, four weeks to prepare for a really, really good defense. Uh, and obviously the, the, the verse is true for, uh, for Jim Harbaugh and the plan he's going to come up with against the Gators. But, uh, by the time this game rolls around, uh, I think the excitement will be uh, much higher than it is maybe in the initial uh, uh, days of that bowl announcement. And uh, whatever Florida has become over the last year under uh, Dan Mullen will, will be on display there in uh, Atlanta.
1: Well, a couple of interesting notes before we move on from that. You know, the, the idea of Florida UCF, I think the fans wanted it. But logistically, what people don't know about the bowl selection process, at least a lot of people, the committee does not like to send teams at large to the same bowl back-to-back years. So UCF being in Atlanta last year meant they did not want to send them to Atlanta again this year. So the only way to do that matchup was going to be at the Fiesta Bowl. And obviously, from a ticket sales perspective, it did not make sense to have two Florida teams playing in Phoenix. So that's that's the biggest reason why that didn't happen from everything I understand. And one more note on Michigan. Uh, you talked about, Chris, how will Florida match up against that defense? That's the number one defense in the country going into the Ohio State game, who subsequently gave up 62 points to the Buckeyes. So who knows what that game will look like, but it was certainly shocking to see them play the way they did in what will be their final game before this meeting. Let's move on now to our PAT. It's a 2 prong PAT because there's two huge topics. We couldn't pick just one of them. So I'm going to get a thought from each of you on both. Let's start with the latest news that came out on Tuesday morning. What I think surprised a lot of people, the announcement that Urban Meyer was going to be retiring from coaching and was leaving Ohio State and they have a succession plan in place following the Rose Bowl. I think a lot of Florida fans saw this and said, wait a minute, haven't we seen something like this before? That's probably the more cynical view of it. Others think this really is the final time. It's different in this instance. Uh, for both of you, what do you think? Is this the last time Urban Meyer is going to coach? Or are we going to see him again sometime and maybe even the near future on a sideline?
3: You know, Adam, this is my just personal thoughts. Urban Meyer is 54 years old. Uh, he's still a pretty young guy. It's been a very tumultuous season for him at Ohio State. Obviously, the three-game suspension. Uh, with the uh, Zach Smith uh, situation, then some uh, damaging media reports and other issues throughout the season uh, that has really uh, caused a lot of stress for him. I mean, people have talked about a lot about his demeanor on the sideline, how during some of the games he's looked kind of out of his mind, for lack of a better word. And I think he needs the time away. I think it's a good time for him to step away. But as you know, as Florida fans know, uh, we've been down this road before. So you talk about that cynicism, uh, that surrounds Urban Meyer. I think that's just natural instinct from people who follow his career. A great, great coach. You cannot argue the results, the issues that a lot of people have or the methods that he mm-hmm. gets those results. I'll be interested to see, like everybody else. I mean, I just see him coaching again at some point, whether that's, I, I still think he's more suited for the college game with the way he runs a program and his tactics. I don't know if we'll ever see him in NFL, but you know the way this game works. Uh, someone of his stature, someone with his success, there's going to come a point when someone picks up a phone who's looking for a, a head football coach, and they're going to make that call to Irvin Meyer. Uh, might be next year. might be three years. He's going to take that call, and it just depends on how he's feeling that day, maybe whether or not he gets back into it. But as much of a competitor as he is, and from what he's accomplished in the game, I mean, uh, I just I just have a hard time thinking that we've seen the last of him on the sideline.
2: I didn't see Urban Meyer's uh, press conference. Uh, my only intel from it was from uh, what what I saw snippets of it on, on social media. But I, I believe that it, to the question of whether he was going to coach again, at one point he said, um, I think I've coached my last game. But at another point, he may have said. According to what I saw on, the, on on social media, it's a complicated question. Mm-hmm. But he's a complicated person in many many ways. <laughs> Just by saying the word "it's a complicated question," he's he's left the door open. I'm in agreement with Scott. I, I, I don't think it's going to be three years from now. I think he'll get his little R and R, whatever that might be. And I, I don't think he's a big R and R guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, for his R and R, the last time he had to go, he had to fly back and forth from ESPN every weekend, and miss a lot of the stuff that he said he was going to sit around the house for now. I, I certainly don't know the ins and outs of this particular um, uh, health issue that he's dealing with. And it looks like he's in incredible pain. Most of the time, it looks like he's in pain when his team's losing the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he'll be on the sidelines. I don't think it will be next year, probably a year after that. I wouldn't be surprised if an NFL team makes a run at him, maybe the Cleveland Browns. Again, to Scott's point, I think he's probably more of a college coach than a pro coach. But all these guys have egos. All of them have those itches to scratch. We've certainly seen it in these parts plenty of times relative to a guy going from college to the pros. So um, I, I do not think that he's coached his last game, but I do believe it's a it's a, it's a a complicated issue.
1: And I'm, I'm with you, Chris. I think 2020, I think Urban Meyer's probably back on the sideline. A lot of people think if you look at the landscape, 2020 USC makes a lot of sense if you look at the situation <laughs> Clay Hilton's in right now.
2: Perfect fit. I'm, I'm sure that they'd be doing backflips to have someone like Urban Meyer come in. Coming to that league. Two years from now, when he takes that job, you can remind us again of how you made that prediction.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Second part of our PAT, it's the discussion every college football fan's been engaging in all week long. And certainly all of us are college football fans first and foremost. Uh, the committee, did they get the playoff right? I think they did. What do you guys think?
3: Yeah, I do think they got it right. There was that late movement with Georgia, Georgia, Everybody's starting to get on Georgia like, Hey, they should be in there the way they played Alabama. Uh, my take on that is they lost. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They won that game. Exactly. Uh, if they won that game, certainly I would have said Georgia deserves to be in there and I would have no, had no problem having Alabama still in there after that loss. But when Georgia lost that game, I think Oklahoma was deserving team. Uh, I've never been on this, uh, you see a bandwagon in the playoff. I don't think their schedule stacks up. I don't think Ohio State has the resume that Oklahoma does. Uh, again, I think they got it right. I'm looking forward to see how it plays out. and uh, I still think that we'll be talking about Alabama and Nick Saban winning another national title. Um, I think they're a the best team, but I do think they got the three other best teams in there with them.
2: The subject of Georgia and the and the fist pounding about Georgia. I, I once they had the second loss to Scotts Point, and to your point, Adam, um, yeah, I mean, I don't even think there's a discussion. But for some reason, there, mm-hmm. because they lost another close game to Alabama, and people bringing up what happened last year with Alabama, just a, a, along the way, the most important thing and the thing you just say to Georgia fans to to quiet them down, although I guess it didn't, is is the LSU game. That was a bad loss. Mm-hmm. They lost. By and turn the ball over four times. So, um, just like that was a bad loss. The loss that kept Ohio state out was their loss to Purdue, which was a 30 point loss. So, uh, uh, uh ugly losses should count. Mm-hmm. And they did in this particular circumstance. And, uh, if, if, uh, you know, Oklahoma had a, had a bad loss to tear out and say it's a bad loss.
1: They lost to a top 10 team on a field goal go. at oh. the horn.
2: Yeah. The field goal at the horn. And, and they righted that loss by winning the rematch. So, uh, I think it was correct across the board. I still don't like the four team thing. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm much rather they double that bracket, but that's a story for another day. And I do believe it'll happen eventually. I remember sitting in Steve Spurrier's office over and over again, or him at press conference talking about eight teams. Let him play. He, he actually wanted 16, I think. So, um, I mean, they'd be playing, they'd be playing football in March. Um, <laughs> yeah. kind of like he kind of like he will be this year. But, exactly. Uh, uh, I, I think an eight bracket format would, would eventually be a way to go. But in terms of what it had to be with four, uh, this is fine. They got it right. I, 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 hope they at least, uh, I disagree with Scott. I hope they at least talked about UCF. I know they didn't, but I hope they at least talked about it because there's four undefeated teams in the, in the country right now. Mm-hmm. And those, and those four undefeated teams, you know, could have been in this, in this little, uh, three game party that, the. That they're having, and that would have been kind of cool. But it, it, until the Knights can beef up their schedule somehow, and I know it's nobody wants to play them, mm. um, I think this is the circumstances uh, that we have to deal with. And on on on, the, on those points, yes, they. Uh, I think the committee did ultimately get it
1: right. And to the Georgia point, it seemed like that conversation was almost started by Kirk Herbstreit. He was the first one. It seemed like that made the case. He said Georgia should be number three after they lost. That they should move up, and that was that. Got everybody talking, it almost gave everybody else permission to engage in that conversation and almost at a point uh led the Georgia people to believe that it was a right because Kirk Herbstreet, as you know one of the kings of college football decreed it to be but I think the committee ultimately made the right decision and as you said Chris at some point wins and losses have to matter and if if Georgia's best case was a loss to a good Alabama team as opposed to their best win which actually was against Florida you could say it was probably their best win you got to have a better resume than that if you want to be in the playoff just the way it is.
3: My favorite stat from all that discussion was I saw something where in the two losses to Alabama, Georgia led like 118 yeah. minutes, and yeah. they only are led or tied, and they still lost both games. So that's the only stat I would need. I don't need to hear what Herb Street or anyone else <laughs> has. <have to> <laughs>
1: Very good points. Uh, I'm glad we're all in agreement. This is a good way to wrap. We all agree on this topic. This does not happen very often. So we'll just go ahead and say, everyone, make sure to follow Chris this weekend. He'll be tracking everything related to Florida, Michigan State and the O-Dome. And you can follow both these guys at Gators Chris, at Gators Scott on Twitter. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. For a team that came just two sets from a national championship last season, it was surprising to see Florida volleyball on the road this past weekend in the first round of the NCAA tournament. But seed or no seed, the Gators showed their talent and experience make them a formidable foe at any venue, and now they're back in the Sweet 16. As they prepare to head to BYU for Friday's showdown with the Cougars, we spoke with junior Rachel Kramer about her life, how volleyball was truly a family matter, and the Gators' unusual mindset entering the tournament.
0: Now we're going to be the underdog. We're no longer going to be at home. We're going to be on the road. But UCF is a great place to play at. So honestly, it's only an hour and 30 minutes away. We got a bunch of fans down there. So it's basically like a half home match for us, but it was definitely kind of embracing that underdog mentality and that we are no longer a seeded team in this tournament.
1: Well, and that's different, you know, for, for Florida, obviously a year ago, you're in the national final. That's not a position you're used to being in. So how much of a change in mindset was it being kind of the underdog in, in, in a strange way?
0: I've never been an underdog since I've been at Florida. You kind of never think of Florida as the underdog in any tournament. I mean, all of our sports are awesome here on campus. So it was definitely different. But I think Mary Wise did such a great job of just preparing us for that and just kind of knowing that we were going into battle and just doing all. She loves to do analogies. So right now, our analogy is we're climbing up a mountain. And each step of the way, it's just one step at a time. And we're slowly going to get there. And every single match, every single practice is us just like inching towards the top of the mountain and the top of the mountain being that national championship and winning it. So she's so awesome with analogies and she really makes sure that our team is mentally prepared for being on the road and not being seated. And I think she does such a fantastic job.
1: Taking on FSU in the first round of an NCAA tournament is is pretty intense. It's it's kind of a crazy way to start your tournament run. Uh, What was it like emotionally having your first tournament game be that type of rivalry showdown?
0: It's always interesting because we always played in the beginning of the season. So it's always an opponent that we've at least played once which is sometimes nice. Be Honestly, it was really nice because we could look at past film and what did we do so well against them? What did we not do well? So I think that really helped us already having in the mindset, well, we played them this year. We played this roster this year. And how can we play them better? And I think we definitely took on the mindset of this is an advantage. It's not a disadvantage playing your rival because you've already played them. So many teams in the tournament you've never played before. You've never seen them before. You don't know how you're going to match up. So for us, it was almost like this is a fantastic opponent for us because we can really hone in on what they do well and try to negate it. And I think we did such a good job of that in that first match of just knowing what they were going to do before they did it.
1: Once you're into to tournament mode like you are now, how much do you rely on your past experiences? Like, How much do you think about, okay, well, we were in the finals last year, so being on the road for the first round, that, that's not that big a challenge. I mean, how much do you lean on that experience when you get to this stage?
0: Uh, honestly a ton and especially because we have so many freshmen on the team it's almost like the upperclassmen have to share those experiences being in the final four last year we try to tell stories of what it was like what it felt and even this season we played at nebraska and playing them at home is such a kind of a hostile environment because they sell out their arena so well and their fans are amazing Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like we can lean on things that even happened this season for our freshmen that haven't had those final four experiences, experiences from last year. But I know personally in my game, I've grown so much over the years that I've been here at Florida and kind of taking every match and soaking it in and just kind of like knowing what I did well in the past tournaments or even past season and trying to improve upon it this year and use that experience to my advantage.
1: I want to talk about you a little bit. Now we're going to take the focus away from volleyball. I'm, I'm curious, if you can tell us about your family, where you grew up, and some of the the early details.
0: So, um, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona, a long ways away from Florida. Yes, I have an older brother who's three years older than me, and um, we kind of lived at the same house my entire life in Arizona. I've never moved, so moving away for college was different. But my family is so important to me. My parents are my greatest supporters. My mom was my first coach for volleyball she played in high school and college she played at community college in Arizona for one year mm-hmm. and she was my first YMCA coach so for <laughs> one of the fundamentals of what I learned from volleyball came from her and honestly my height I'm 6'8 and my mm-hmm. dad is 6'8 and my mom is six foot wow. so get the height from both of them but I definitely take more after my dad so it's kind of funny cause Who I am now is such a mix of both my parents, and it's fun to say that my first volleyball coach was my mom. For the longest time it was, for three or four years, she was my YMCA coach before I decided to play club volleyball um, when I was 13. But for the longest time, she was the person that kind of (laughs) drove me into volleyball.
1: So is that what got you interested in the sport? I mean, did you wake up one day and say, I want to play volleyball? Was your mom like, hey, here's something I think you should try?
0: Yeah, it was definitely more, you should try this, because I tried a bunch of sports when I was younger, I did gymnastics when I was little, and my gymnastics coach had told me, I think you're going to be too tall for gymnastics, I don't think you should continue, (laughs) so I always joke that I got kicked out of gymnastics, I did soccer for a little bit, and soccer didn't work out, I'm not a runner, and my mom kind of said, well, why don't you try volleyball, like... I did volleyball. I loved it. And I was like, "Mm, sure, mom, I'll just try it. And I couldn't find a YMCA team to be on because they were all filled. So my mom was like, well, why don't I just be your coach? And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want my mom to be my coach. Right. It ended up working out awesome. She was my coach. And I got a bunch of my kind of elementary school friends to join my team. So it kind of started off of just like, All my best friends played volleyball, so I would play with them, Hmm. and my mom would be my coach, and that's kind of how it started in the beginning of just playing with my friends because it was fun, and then my mom happened to be my coach.
1: That seems to work out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I I guess the natural question, being 6'8", is was basketball ever a thought? Did you try it? Were you being uh, encouraged by people to play basketball?
0: No, I never played it. My older brother played it for a few years, and he got burnt out by it. But I never even thought to try it. It was always volleyball for me. And I remember being in high school, the girls basketball coach, um, like begged me to be on the team. He was like, please just try out. Like our girls basketball team was so bad and I wanted, I just want a state championship in volleyball. And I was like, no, I'm not playing basketball. Like volleyball is going to be it for me. And he would beg me to be on the team. But that was like the only person that has ever truly been like, oh, you should play basketball. It has always been volleyball my entire life. Huh.
1: Well, so that, that sort of ties into to this question, which is I'm sort of playing into stereotypes, right? You're very tall. Yeah. So I assume you play basketball. I'm curious that you've gone through your life being so tall. What are the advantages and disadvantages to, to being six foot eight?
0: Definitely the advantages come within sport, just being so tall, especially in volleyball. There's so many times where I will block a ball standing on the ground and my coaches <laughs> just kind of, just kind of laugh about it. And it definitely helps within volleyball and sports. But my grandfather, who was six, six, always said that height was his biggest advantage in business because people would always remember him for being tall George, not just George. <laughs> they would always remember him for his height. So I'm kind of looking forward to that within growing in my career of just seeing like people remembering me because of my height. So I've definitely already seen it. People knowing me on campus because of my height And sometimes our smaller players on the team never get recognized just because they (laughs) kind of blend into the crowd. And I kind of like standing out. I love being tall. I've never thought of it as a negative thing. And I like really attribute that to my parents. They have always been so positive about it. It's such a beautiful thing to be tall. I should never be ashamed of it. I should always try to put my shoulders back and try to be even taller, never slouching down. So my parents have been awesome on that. I would say the only negative part is just the ignorant people that I kind of meet in everyday world Mm -hmm. of just asking how tall I am. And then even if I'm wearing a volleyball shirt, it will clearly say volleyball. (laughs) Do you play basketball? No, no, I don't play basketball. And sometimes it'll get annoying, but I just try to take it as like, this is just who I am. But if I go out in public, there is not a day where I've not been asked how tall I am. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of you, you get used to it at some point. And all my friends are like, doesn't that get annoying? And I'm like, not if you get it every day, <laughs> you just kind of get used to it. It just is what it is. It right. just happens.
1: Right. So being from Arizona, you mentioned you're you're from a long way away from Florida. What is it that drew you all the way across the country?
0: It was actually kind of random. I mean, I was like starting to get a lot of letters my freshman year in high school of just colleges. I never thought play in college. And when I kind of got letters in the mail, I was like, oh, I guess I am good at volleyball. Like, I guess I could do this in college. And I got a letter from Florida and I remember asking my dad, like, is Florida good? Because you don't hear about Florida in Arizona. Like I never heard of the Florida Gators before I got a letter. Wow. Which I think is so crazy, but I just never heard about it. And I was playing USA Volleyball at the time. So there's an HP championship, which is like a summer week long thing that you get invited to after a trial. And it happened to be in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and me and my parents like called Sally who used to be the old recruiting director here before Shannon and we're like is Fort Lauderdale anywhere close to Gainesville (laughs) and of course she kind of like lied to us because she wanted to get us up to Gainesville and she's like you know like it wouldn't be that bad of a drive you should really (laughs) do it because I knew I just would never be back on the east coast right and my dad was like Okay, it's probably like a four and a half hour drive. Like, let's just do it. When are we going to be back in Florida? So we did it after the USA Volleyball camp that I did and drove up here. And this was actually my first college visit. I'd never visited another school before this. And I took the entire day trip here, got offered at the end of the day. And I went back to the hotel that night and I told my parents, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to find another school that I love as much as I do here. and I think that was just the weirdest thing for me to say, because I'd never seen another college. like I didn't visit anywhere else. And my parents felt the same exact way. I just fell in love with everything here from Mary and Dave and Shannon and the coaches and just the school itself. And at the time I wanted to do marine biology and they didn't even have a marine biology major <laughs> at florida but i was like i'm willing to change my major or just do something else <laughs> and i just was just so sold on the fact and i told my dad that night i was like if i commit to florida will you buy me a motor scooter and of course him not thinking was like yeah i'll buy you a motor scooter if you go here <laughs> like not thinking that i would come here and we went back home to Arizona. I visited the University of Arizona, uh, like a few weeks later, really didn't like it, found a lot of things I didn't love about it. So on the way back from visiting, we like stopped in Olive Garden and I just told my parents, I was like, I think we need to stop looking. Like, I don't think I'm going to find another school that I love as much as Florida. And a month later on my fall break, I came out here and committed to Florida. Oh. And that was my sophomore year of high school. So it was really early, and I think the coaches were surprised by like how early I committed. Like I just visited that summer, and then fall break a few months later, I was like, "Yep, I'm coming here. Like this is the one."
1: When you came into the program, obviously you'd, you'd had a long time to think about it and what it was going to be like. But once you got there and, and saw what the reality was, who served as your biggest mentor? Who helped you adjust the most to playing at the next level and, and to being a college student?
0: Uh, Ramat and Ramat has been my greatest mentor since I stepped on campus here she was someone that I looked up to even before I came here I just thought she was the greatest volleyball player and if I was going to go anywhere and learn how to be a middle it would be here at Florida under Ramat and that's truly what happened my freshman year she took me under her wing and at times I would say that I would be annoyed with her because she'd just be yelling at me all practice Rachel do this do that and I just thank her so much for doing that my freshman year, because I think she's truly one of the reasons why I played my freshman year. I came in here thinking that I wouldn't play. I basically told everyone, I was like, I'll probably redshirt my freshman year. Like, I won't play. And I started my freshman year, which I still to this day can't believe that I did that. I think it's amazing. But I attribute that so much to Ramat and how hard she was on me. But at the end of the day, I respected her so much because everything that she was saying was just trying to make me a better volleyball player. And even off the court, she was the greatest person, and just kind of a role model because everything that she did in her life, I wanted to aspire to be. And when she left last year, it just made me so sad. But I still talk to her now, even though she's playing in Japan. Mm, she wow. is still one of my biggest mentors. And I'm sure she'll be a friend for life, but she has just been the greatest mentor for me at Florida.
1: How do conversations work between Gainesville and Japan with the the time difference?
0: (laughs) You know, it's not easy (laughs) now that it's 14 hours. Wow. So a lot of times she would be calling me in class. I'm like, Ramon, I can't answer. I'm in class. (laughs) So now we've kind of decided that Monday nights are the best. So it's my Monday night and her Tuesday morning. So. It started to work now. Hopefully, it'll continue to go. I looked into flights to Japan for spring break. They were a little bit too expensive, but I (laughs) want to go visit her.
1: So, obviously, you learn a lot from teammates like Ramad. I know also the coaching staff plays a huge role. What's the most significant lesson you think you've learned from Mary Wise?
0: Honestly, I think it's the empowerment that she has in women. It's not even volleyball she's just the biggest advocate for being such an independent and proud woman and just knowing that you can support yourself in life you don't need anyone else and just being so successful and kind of being so humble about it like whenever you ask mary wise about an award or she gets 800 wins what do you feel about that she never puts it on herself she always puts it on other people so that humble attitude i just admire so much and from her And I've learned so much about that. Like anytime that I get a personal award, like that's great, but I'm not the one who always earned it for myself, my teammates around me, the people around me. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned from Mary that you just, it's not a selfish thing. You just kind of very, very humble about whatever award you get. And it's kind of funny because anytime you bring something up to her, about her accomplishments she doesn't really want to talk about it Mm -hmm. which is the funny thing it's just it just it is what it is and you don't really talk about it and she has all these amazing accolades and she's been here forever but she's always looking on in the next game the next season and I just admire that so much about her.
1: I know you talked about Ramat and your admiration for her I'm curious if there's athletes maybe professional athletes they don't even have to be in your sport just anyone who you admire, or you maybe take something from as you observe them from afar?
0: When I was younger, it was Steve Nash on the Suns. Hmm. Growing up, my dad was a Suns fan, but he was also that humble athlete, never cocky about whatever accomplishments he did. If you ever watched him, he was such a great teammate to everyone around him. So I kind of took that upon myself as like, I never want to be that selfish teammate or just... It's all about me, teammate. You want to be there for your team, and you want to do well because of your teammates. And I think that's one of the things that I learned from watching him. And I'm sad he doesn't play anymore because (laughs) he was amazing to watch, especially growing up.
1: He also had phenomenal hair. Uh (laughs) Oh, for sure. (laughs) Next level hair for a basketball player, no question. So being in Gainesville now compared to growing up in in the Phoenix area, what are some of the biggest differences – between those two
0: Gainesville is definitely a smaller town I'm used to having my big city kind of there's so many towns within Phoenix and everywhere around there you can basically go wherever you want and being in Gainesville I kind of felt trapped sometimes so I asked my parents for a car after my freshman year so I could get out of here and just kind of leave Gainesville because sometimes I would feel like I just can't stay here. Like I need to go see other places, visit other places. So oh. I actually got a Disney World season pass. Oh, wow. And I go to Disney World a ton to try to get out of Gainesville. But I think that's that of been one of the biggest adjustments of just living in a smaller town. I like it because more people know you and it's just kind of like more of a family type feel. But at the same time, I really miss Phoenix and like the big city feel and just there's so many things to do always. There's so many people. So I love both, but I do miss the big city.
1: As we wind things down, now that I know you invested in a Disney pass, I have to ask some <laughs> Disney questions because that's a sizable investment. So, you, you know, it needs, yes. to, it needs to be justified. Uh, oh, I'm yes. curious, what is your favorite park?
0: Magic Kingdom. Your old school, Phoenix? traditional. <laughs> Traditional. My teammates always make fun of me because I always go down there by myself. <laughs> I'll go for like literally two hours. Like I'll spend four hours driving in the car, but I will be there for two hours, ride like two rides and come back. I just need the mental break sometimes and I think that's the greatest thing about it. Just kinda get the mental break, ride a few rides, then come back to Gainesville and I feel so much better. <laughs> wow.
1: Favorite rides?
0: Um Space Mountain, I love. Mine Train, I love. I'd say those are my top two.
1: Those are long lines. That's if you go down there for two hours, I don't know if you have time to even get on both of those.
0: I know exactly. I went last week and just rode Space Mountain and came back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I hope it was a really good ride then.
0: (laughs) It was awesome. I loved it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, final thing for you. Uh, We'll bring things back to volleyball. Just in terms of the matchup with BYU, what are you guys preparing for? What does that look like as you, uh, you study some film?
0: Definitely. BYU is an awesome team with some really good outsides, and they're really quick, especially if they're arm swing. So we're preparing this week a lot on our blocking because we know they'll be a huge part of the match and what we need to do to be successful. So we've looked, worked a lot on being quicker up top of our hands, trying to get over the net faster. And BYU's got a pretty good offense, that they spread it out a lot. So I know our serving will be key to try to get them out of system. Basically things that we've been doing all season. We're just kind of sharpening the blade and just kind of forming it into how we can best prepare for BYU and beat them.
1: Well, Rachel, we really appreciate your time and uh, wish you a lot of luck out there on the West Coast coming up this week. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow all the action this weekend as volleyball battles for another trip to the Final Four and basketball tries to topple Sparty in the O-Dome, then come back next week as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the O-Dome.